And as you head back, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. To John chapter 6. We had a few people out still traveling from Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and ate a lot of sweet potato casserole because that is the best thing you can eat on Thanksgiving. Here I stand. I can do no other. But I'm excited to be back with you continuing on in our series through the book of John that you may believe. We decided this year we'll take a little break for our Christmas Eve service in the morning, but we're going to just continue on in the book of John. I typically rotate Advent series, so I do an Advent series every other year, and we did one last year. So we're going to continue on in the book of John uh, this morning and through this season while still reflecting on the coming of our Messiah. But I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read John chapter 6. We're going to look at two stories this morning, both the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, I want to read through verse 21. So hear, hear the word of the Lord. John writes this, says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down and the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the Sea of Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And watch this. And at once, the boat was at the shore where they were heading. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people because, God, we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated.
There's more to the story. You know, I like, I like a good story. I really enjoy reading. But I got to admit to you all, um, that wasn't always the case for me. You know, some people come out of the womb and they're just readers until the day they die. That wasn't initially me. Uh, right, so if I wasn't assigned it for school, I probably wasn't reading it. And even then, if I was assigned it for school, if I'm honest, I was trying to get my friends to fill me in on the important parts that would likely show up on the quiz. This was the pre-internet version of SparkNotes. If you know, you know. So all that to say, I wasn't necessarily a big fan of reading. But that all changed when I was in high school. It was my junior year of school, uh, and I was starting in the International Baccalaureate program, so it was a pretty rigorous academic program that if you did well in it, pretty much guaranteed you could go to whatever college you wanted to. So I wanted to take it serious. I understood the honor it was to be accepted in this program. I wanted to take it seriously. So in English class, the very beginning of my junior year, our teacher assigned us the first book of the year that we were going to read, a book by an author um, called Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And... Again, I wanted to take it seriously. I wanted to do well. So I went home and planned, like some of you who have been assigned books have planned. I opened the book. It was 417 pages. I divided it by 30 because I had a month to read it. And I was like, all right, 14 pages a day, I can do this. I can read this book. So I went home, knew I had to read 14 pages the first day. And I started to read. And then something happened that never happened before in my life. I got to 14 pages. And I didn't stop. I couldn't stop. I stayed up most of that night reading that book, read about three-fourths of it that night, and then finished it the next day. It was unheard of for me at the time. See, what drew me in was it was a complex story. In other words, there were many levels to the story. It was more than just kind of what it appeared to be on the surface, but it was all kind of giving, getting to the same point, but it was a complex yet beautiful and somewhat inappropriate book for a junior to read in high school, but it was a sign, so I had to read it. So I'm not going to tell you the title. I just told you it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You can figure the rest out on your own. But after that story, I was hooked but I started to pursue books like that. I, I, I enjoyed it. I was captivated by the story because there's so many levels. It went so deep. And in a real sense, it was that assignment and that book that sparked my love for reading. I still love a good story. I will take a book curled up in bed over a movie or TV show any day of the week. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with what we just read? I know I've had some outlandish introductions. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we come to a story today that if you've spent any time in church, you've likely heard many times before. Two stories, actually. First, we come to Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a classic story. Top 10 children's ministries around the world. Yeah. Jesus feeding the 5,000. Followed by the second greatest, Jesus walking on water. Some of us grew up in church and we saw white Jesus walking on the water like he was going to bless the boat. Jesus wasn't white, side note. <laughs> but they're incredible stories. But when we consider the feeding of the 5,000, it's, it's a story with an unlikely candidate, a child who provides the initial resource that Jesus would use to feed thousands. It captivates us and for good reasons. And it really does. These stories really do have a central point. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you at the beginning. That Jesus is the opportunity to every obstacle. That Jesus is the provider in the midst of every problem. Ultimately, that Jesus is the source of your resource. 
But like any good story, although this one is far from fiction, there are deeper levels to John chapter 6 than we might actually realize. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to take this text from two different angles. I want to look at the story from two different lenses, from two different levels, if you will. And I want to first take the story as it is, right? The story in real time, the story that most of us know. And I want to try to pull some lessons out as we go. So that's, that's the surface level, because even in the moment, Jesus is trying to teach truths that are both simple and complex. So I want to make sure we get some of the simple truths, but then I want to look at it a little deeper to a level that we might not have realized existed in this story. And so I want to see the level beyond the surface. And we'll call that the redemptive level. So in essence, I'm just giving you a heads up, we're going to walk through the story two times. And we're going to look at it from two different angles and hopefully see that there's more to the story that, than there might initially seem to be. Because let's be honest, isn't that the way it is with so many of our lives? Oftentimes there's more going on than we realize. There's more things Jesus are, is doing than we can comprehend at any given moment. So we're going to approach the text from two levels. Y'all with me? Anybody? Okay, all right. So here's what I want to look at first. I want to look at the surface level. Or, or what's transpiring in the moment. The story begins for us in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So this is John kind of giving us an introduction. He's setting the stage for us and says that, Hey, Jesus has, has, has just gone across the Sea of Galilee. A bunch of people are following him. Why? Per performing miracles, healing the sick. So what we have to remember is we're on the heels of chapter 5, what we talked about last week, where Jesus has just healed a person who had been lame for 38 years. And upon his healing, the religious leaders were focused more on the breaking of the Sabbath than the fact that a human made in the image of God had been healed. And so once they find out it was Jesus who healed and commanded this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, they were furious with Jesus. But if you remember last week, Jesus actually ups the ante when he gives his defense. Because not only did he heal on the Sabbath, but he made himself equal with God. Jesus was claiming to be God in flesh. That's what we saw in verses 17 and 18. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And so the religious leaders couldn't handle that. And so they were seeking to kill Jesus. And so in chapter 6, we pick up after this event. It starts with after this. Now, we don't know how long after. It might have been an hour. It might have been a week. We don't know exactly how long, but it was after this event. So here's a side note for you. If you've been reading through the book of John with me, which I hope you have, been reading ahead, one of the things you have to know is that John's unique compared to all the other gospels. John does not care a lick about chronology. What I mean is his stories are not in order. And some people have looked at that and said, well, see, these are discrepancies. These are inconsistencies between the gospels. What we have to understand is John's not concerned about chronology. John's concerned about theology. So he's building his gospel in a way that's moving through Jesus' life theologically, not chronologically. So he's not concerned about how long after it it actually was. He's just saying, this is the next thing you need to know theologically in this progression. So Jesus is traveling on the hillside, and a crowd begins to follow Jesus. 
Now John tells us why they're following him again in verse 2. Huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So once again, we're reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 2 where he says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. So this is a group of people who were not necessarily concerned with who Jesus was. They were more concerned with what he could do for them. And we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go too deep, but just a reminder that that too can be a problem that's present with us. When our faith in Jesus, when our belief in Jesus hinges first on what he can do rather than who he is. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't look to Jesus for what he can do. I'm just saying that the foundation of our worship, the foundation of our praise and, and our recognition of him hinges not first on what Jesus can do. It hinges on who he is. The reason being is if you're only going to worship Jesus, if Jesus is doing the things you want, I hate to break it to you. There are going to come times in your life where you are praying for good things and Jesus says no because he has a better thing. But you just can't see it because you don't sit outside of time and space. You're not looking at this like he is looking at it. And so if I our praise hinges on what he does and our praise is going to be a fickle thing. But if our praise is built on who he is, well, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so we have a solid foundation on which we can praise and recognize Jesus. Now for these people, the text seems to indicate that they were coming to Jesus not based on a commitment to his lordship, but rather out of a curiosity for what he could do. I'm not faulting them for that. Because many of us in this room started out with curiosity and it was that curiosity that led us to commitment. So Jesus is away with his disciples. He's sitting on the side of the mountain. And I know maybe it's my imagination. I try to always put myself there. But I can just picture Jesus, right? He might just be a little bit worn out. I mean, think about all he's just been through. He's tired. People are trying to kill him. Maybe he just wants a break from the city. Maybe he just wants to spend time with his disciples. And so the text seems to indicate that Jesus goes out into the countryside not with the intention of feeding the 5,000. Because the story tells us, picking up in verse 4, now the Passover Jewish feast was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where will we buy bread so that all these people can eat? And he asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. So again, we got to try to place ourselves there. Jesus has been journeying on the hillside, probably a little bit worn out from traveling. And he turns and he sees this huge crowd coming towards him. And we, we get a glimpse of just how big it is in verse 10. It says that there were 5,000 men. Now Matthew's gospel tells us that they, it wasn't only men who were coming, but there were also women and children there as well. So picture this. Most scholars estimate that the number of people coming towards Jesus was most likely between 10 to 12 thousand people showing up to see Jesus. That's not a small church service. <laughs> Southeast has still got them beat, but you know, Jesus will get there eventually. <laughs> that was a joke. Make sure y'all with me. But 10 to 12,000 people coming towards Jesus. And so Jesus, I mean, can you picture it? He's sitting with his disciples. I can imagine his disciples' face, right? <gasps> like they, this crowd turns a corner. And then Jesus looks to one of his disciples, I would not want to be Philip, and says, hey, where are we going to buy food for them? 
Now, it makes sense that Jesus would turn to Philip. Philip was the only disciple from that region. So he knew where the super Walmart was. He knew where Kroger was. He knew where, let's be honest, where Aldi was. <laughs> he knew the area better than the rest of the disciples. And so Jesus says to him, hey man, where are we going to get this food to feed all these people? Again, those people had likely been traveling through the morning. They catch up with Jesus and Jesus knows that these people are going to need something to eat. He can't just send them back because some of them might not make it. Some of those children in that long walk might faint. Some of the men and women might not have the strength to make it back if they don't get something to eat. So where are we going to get this food? Now I want you, I want you to see what John tells us about this question in verse 6. It's a very important piece of information. It says he asked this to test him. To test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. In other words, Jesus already knew he was about to perform a miracle. Jesus knew he didn't need to go anywhere to buy food. Jesus knew that the obstacle he was presenting was not a real obstacle at all. So then the question becomes, well, why present the obstacle at all? Well, here's the thing. This single piece of information in verse 6 is positioned to teach us a very significant spiritual truth. That not every area of lack in your life is a bad thing. Not every area of lack in your life is a result of the enemy. Not every area of lack in your life is evidence that you did something wrong. Sometimes the very lack in your life, the obstacles you encounter, the trials you endure, the problems you face, sometimes those very situations are orchestrated by God in order to test you. You do know that Jesus will test you, don't you? Now you might be thinking, well, that just doesn't seem very kind. No, no, no. The testing that comes from Jesus and the testing that Jesus allows is the very thing needed for our faith to survive. It is the means by which our faith is refined. I mean, think about what Peter says in 1 Peter, 6, uh, 1 Peter 1 verses 6 and 7. He says, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials. Here it is. So that the proven character of your faith. More valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is it that proves the character of our faith? Well, it's the fire of trials. You see, faith is not found. Faith is forged. And in order for faith to be forged, you have to go through the fire every now and again. And let's be honest, church, right? Sometimes our faith is so fickle that when we go through the fire, we think that Jesus has failed. I killed that alliteration. <laughs> Sometimes our faith is so fickle that when we go through the fire, we think that Jesus has failed. But see, more often than not, the, the very obstacles we encounter is the evidence that Jesus is working. So Jesus poses this question to test Philip. So the question Jesus poses, watch this, is not primarily a question of finance. It's a question of faith and location. But what does Philip do? He starts considering the economics of the question. Where are we going to go to buy bread? You see, Philip focuses on the buy. I'm going to give you, here's where we're going. Jesus is focusing on the where. 
So, so what does Philip do? Again, he starts considering the economics of the question. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have just a little. So what Philip is saying, he's saying, listen, Jesus, if we had eight months salary, I don't know why he picked eight months, rounded up to a year, it still wouldn't have been enough. But if we had eight months salary, that still wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. But once again, Jesus isn't asking a question of finance. Jesus is asking a question of faith. But can I tell you something this morning? Don't think that Philip's response is an uncommon response. Because there have been some moments when your back was up against the wall. There have been some moments when the demand was greater than your supply. There have been some moments when the need was greater than what you could provide for. And how often was our first thought, what resources do I have to get myself through this problem? But you see, just like Philip in those moments, Jesus is not asking you a question of finance. He's asking you a question of faith. Let me say it like this. How often when Jesus is trying to do something in our lives, do we look at our resources for first? Jesus is trying to move us over there. Jesus is trying to do this. He's trying to lead this way. And our first thought is, well, how am I going to afford this? But notice Jesus didn't ask him how much he got. He didn't say, how much money do we have? I mean, you would think from Philip's response that the question Jesus asked was, how much is it going to cost us to accomplish this? But Jesus doesn't ask how much. He asks, where? Where are we going to buy this food? All right, let me preach it for a second. I came to preach. Y'all ain't talking back. That's fine. I'm going to do it anyway. You see, the problem for so many of us is that we try to tackle spiritual problems with earthly resources and then wonder why we fail. But the question Jesus poses is not a question of resources. It's a question of location. Not what do you have, but where are you going to go when the obstacle seems too great? Where are you going to go when the trials are too hard? Where are you going to go when the problems you face are beyond your ability? So Philip, looking at his resources, found the problem insurmountable. But watch this, verses 8 and 9. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, here's the thing. The implication from the text is not that Andrew had more faith than Philip. Because even his response is focused on the resources. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Here it is. But what are they for so many? You see, the implication from the text is not that a Andrew went and brought a little boy who had some food believing that Jesus could do something. The implication from the text is that Andrew spotted this little boy already bringing his two fish and his barley bread. That's the poor man's bread to Jesus. So he says, I mean, there's a boy here, but all he's got is five biscuits and a couple little fish. But here's the truth of the matter. The boy believes something that the disciples forgot. That in the hands of Jesus, our insufficiencies are more than sufficient. That in the hands of Jesus, our lack becomes plenty. In the hands of Jesus, our weakness invites a strength beyond ourselves. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that in the midst of any circumstances, you can either focus on your resources or focus on the source. And you would have thought that they would have gotten this by now. Because in chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. In chapter 4, a royal official's son was here. In chapter 5, the lame man is walking and Jesus testifies to his own power and authority. Not to mention how John's already randomly thrown in there. Oh, and by the way, he was doing a whole bunch more miracles and a whole bunch more healing. I'm just not writing it down. And they were there for all of it. 
Their story was one of witnessing Jesus make a way where there was no way. But let's be honest, sometimes even for us, it doesn't matter how much we've seen, we still look to the wrong thing when the obstacles come. Because I have to believe that there are some people in this room who can look back on your own life and say, man, God made a way when there was no way. You can look back and say, I didn't know how I was going to make it, but I'm still standing. You can say that God has proven himself to be faithful time and time again. And then the next challenge comes and still we look to our resources before we look to the source. So the little boy comes to Jesus and Jesus tells the people to sit down. Now, I don't know why I like this line so much. It's almost like John's like throwing a jab in there, but he says, there was plenty of grass, right? There might not have been a lot of food, but there was plenty of grass for them to sit down on. I don't know. I like it. So what does Jesus do? He takes the bread, he gives thanks for it, and then he distributes this. And look at this at the end of verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, here it is, as much as they wanted. And now verse 12, and when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. I'm trying to tell you, church, Jesus is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you can think or imagine. And sometimes you just have to put what you got in his hands and sit your butt in the grass and let him work. Now, the last couple sections of this, verses of this section are, are very important. Look at verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the implication there, by reference again to Deuteronomy 18, is that they saw Jesus, this is very important, as another Moses. Another one who could deliver them from the grip of Rome, just like Moses delivered Israel from Egypt. That's what they saw when they looked at Jesus. Here is a king, political king. Here's a political ruler. Here is someone who can do what Moses did and deliver us from this bondage of Roman oppression, just like God delivered Israel from Egypt. In essence, they do have good theology. Won't he do it again? But they missed something. Because Jesus pulls back when that's what they want. They were going to make him king by force and he retreats to the hillside away from them. Now this reality points to a deeper level of this story. See, on the surface, this is an incredible story of Jesus being the source of our resources. And we need that lesson, amen? When we place the little we have in his hands, trusting in him in faith, he is able to do so much more than we think or imagine. But as amazing as that is, the other layer to this story, I think, is even more incredible. So that's kind of, we looked at like the surface level, but now I want you to see the redemptive level. You see, the story, this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, coupled with Jesus walking on water in verses 16 through 21, is telling a better story than Jesus' ability to meet your physical needs. The story is also telling you a story about Jesus being able to meet your greatest need. Let me show you how. So you have to remember, we ended, like Moses is all over this thing. We ended chapter 5 with a discussion of Moses. How Jesus declares to the religious leaders that, hey, I'm not going to condemn you. Moses condemns you. Because if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses was writing about me the whole time. And now... 
Jesus is going to show them just that. And if you jump back to the beginning to verse 4, there's a very significant statement. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Now remember, we're in this festival cycle that will go on through 11. So we're coming up to another festival. But this one is named, unlike chapter 5, this was the Passover festival. Now that might not mean much to you, but that little detail gives incredible insight into how we should understand everything that's taking place following it. I'm going to give you a refresher course. John tells us that, that it's the Passover festival. The Passover festival was a Jewish feast that celebrated and remembered God's deliverance of Israel when they were captive slaves in, e in Egypt. You remember that? But we can't forget what it was that secured their freedom. You see, there was a particular night. Y'all know the story, but I'm going to preach it to you because that's what you're paying me to do. There was a particular night where the angel of death was going to sweep through the land and the firstborn of every house was going to die. The angel of death was God's judgment. But make no mistake, it was not just judgment for Egypt. It was God's judgment for everybody, Israel included. You see, the angel of death doesn't discriminate. It's not worried about your financial resources. It's not concerned about your educational prowess. It's not concerned about your political party. It does not regard your ethnicity. It wasn't concerned about your family name. The angel of death would stop for one thing and one thing alone. The very same thing that stops the judgment of God to this day. The blood of the lamb. And if you remember, God said, listen, I need you to take the blood of an innocent lamb and I want you to take that blood. I want you to wipe it on the doorpost of your home. And can I tell you, church, there were some people that actually believed God. And they, they slaughtered that innocent lamb and they covered their doorpost. What an odd thing to do. Covered it with blood. And when the angel of death showed up, it swept through Egypt. But the only people who were saved from judgment were those who were covered in the blood. But see, here's where we miss some things. What we often fail to realize is that the Passover festival did not only celebrate and remember the blood on the door. For the Israelite, the Passover festival was a celebration of the entirety of the Exodus story. You see, Passover is not only symbol, didn't only symbolize God's act of delivering his people from Egypt. It also remembered and celebrated his commitment to do two things. To rescue and to sustain. Here it is. Specifically to rescue them by parting the sea. And to sustain them by providing manna from heaven. So watch this. Oh, this is good. What Jesus is doing. In, in these two stories is he's reenacting the Passover before he recreates the Passover. You see, Jesus feeding 5,000 is more than feeding simply some hungry people who wouldn't have made it back if they were tired. Jesus now, like God the Father then, is providing for them a bread from heaven. But see, Jesus throws some details in there that are important. The collection of the 12 is significant. Let's not even look at the fact that it could, for, it, it, could, it could be pointing us to the fact that God's remembering his 12 tribes and hasn't forgotten his promise. But that's speculation. See, in Exodus 16, when God caused manna to fall, they weren't allowed to collect any leftovers. But with Jesus... You see an abundance in his supply that provides 12 additional baskets. It's almost as if John meant what he said in chapter 1 when he says that we have received in Christ grace upon grace. 
So you have Jesus reenacting the manna from heaven. But there's more there. Jesus is walking on water. And in John's gospel, did you notice, some of you might know the story of walking on water. Who else walked on water during this encounter? Peter. Yeah, John doesn't talk about that at all. Because he doesn't care. He's making a theological point. He's not trying to tell you a story. He's trying to paint you a picture. And see, in John's gospel, John leaves out almost all the details. Not Peter hovering on the boat. Oh, am I going to make it? Step out. Oh, I'm making it. Oh, I'm sinking. None of that matters to John. Again, he's trying to make a theological point. And here's the point. Just like God was sovereign over the waves at the Red Sea, Jesus is sovereign over the waves in John 6, 16 through 21. But I'll do you one better. Let's actually read verses 16 and 21. We haven't spent as much time there as we need. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. All right, so the disciples, like Jesus is pulled back, getting away from the crowds. The disciples are probably like, yeah, we get it. We'll give you your space. So they go get in the boat, head across the sea. But Jesus hasn't come yet. So they're like, man, if he can make, uh, you know, five loaves, two fish, He'll get to us. We're just going to head on across. He'll make it. And so they start rowing out. They've made it about three or four miles. So a little more than halfway across the sea. And and the sea begins to rage. There's waves. The idea is like these are seasoned fishermen, right? And and they're, they're not making any progress. They're stuck. They can't move. And Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. He's coming near the boat. And it says, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board and at once the boat was at shore where they were heading. You see, I actually don't like the way that the CSB translated because what they translated as it is I would be better translated ego and me as I am. So when Jesus approached, how does he identify himself? I am. You know where we've heard that before, don't you? You do remember what God said to Moses from the burning bush. Moses is scared to go back and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Moses asks God, who should I tell them is sending me? And God says, tell them I am. And once again, Jesus is using Exodus language. Let's not even talk about the fact that that John makes it a point to tell them that they're up on a mountain when almost every significant thing in Israel's history has happened on a mountain. But Jesus even uses this Exodus language. That's Passover remembrance. So here's the thing. Even the people to a degree recognized what Jesus was doing. I mean, we miss it so often in the story, but they recognize because that's part of the reason, right? That they say, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Again, that's Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, or from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. They were looking for another prophet. They were looking for another Moses, again, to deliver them from the hand of their oppressor. But what they had in mind was Rome, but Jesus wasn't having that. That's why he left them there on the mountain, because they missed what Jesus was trying to do. What Jesus had in mind was an even greater enemy than Rome. What Jesus had in mind was once again fully and finally conquering the angel of death, conquering sin, death, and Satan himself. That's what I meant when I said that Jesus was reenacting the Passover before he would recreate the Passover. You see, they thought Jesus was coming to be Moses, when in fact Jesus was coming to be the lamb, and they missed it because they wanted a king, but they needed a sacrifice. He was coming to be the Passover lamb, and he's telling us this in this story. Who, though he was innocent, 
His body would be offered up. His blood would be shed. So finally and for all time, we could be covered by the blood of the Lamb. There's a deeper level going on here than we so often realize. So I'm running out of time, so let me bring this to a close. I like John 6 a lot. Part of the reason I like it so much is it reminds me that oftentimes Jesus is doing more than we realize. And again, isn't that true in our lives as well? That when we look back at any given moment, the testimony is true that in that season, in that problem, with that obstacle, Jesus was doing more than you or I could ever imagine. There was always more to the story. There always is more to the story. There's always a deeper level. But here's the hope. The hope is that we don't have to know everything that Jesus is doing. We don't know, have to know the purpose of every pain. We don't have to know what he's trying to accomplish in every trial. All we have to know is who he is and what he's already done. You see, I like the ending John gives us to the story of Jesus walking on water. I had actually, to be honest with you, up until this week, I had never paid attention to this ending before. Right there in the waves, not really making any headway. And Jesus comes walking towards them on the water and they're afraid. And what does Jesus remind them of? I am. I am your provision. I am your deliverance. I am your God. And then verse 21, then they were willing to take him on board and at once, at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. That's a miracle. I had never noticed that before. That Jesus gets in the boat, they're just there. Here's why I like it. They didn't yet know what Jesus was going to do. They didn't know exactly that he was going to die on a cross and raise from the dead, although he's been giving them hints the whole time. Destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. He's the Passover lamb. He's been giving them hints, but they didn't know what he was going to do. But they believed in him and they welcomed him in the boat. Don't miss the fact that the moment they welcomed Jesus, they were immediately, miraculously out of the waves and at their destination. You see, the hope that we have is that while we may still have some waves to face, once we have welcomed Jesus for who he is, we're already seated with him in glory. And he is the guarantee that we will make it to the other side. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are always at work. I thank you, even as Jesus testified earlier in John 5, that, that Jesus is always at work. And Lord, I praise you that you're not only working, but you care for us. And that you have promised that for those who are in Christ Jesus, anything and everything you do will be for our good and for your glory. And so God, I pray, I pray that we would trust you. That when the trials comes, when the obstacles come, that we would believe that we can place it in your hands and you are more than able. God, I pray that we would believe that in Christ we have a better Passover land that we too 
can escape the judgment that is rightly due us because you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross and raise from the dead. And so God, when we can't see clearly how we're going to make it through, how we're going to make it to the other side, I pray that you would give us the confidence and the hope that we have in Christ that we are right now already seated with him in the heavenly places. And our eternity is secure, not because we are sufficient, but because Jesus is. So we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.